You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Good afternoon. My name is uh, Rob Grimshaw. I'm the MD of uh, FD.com. Um, and I'm going to be moderating this panel where we'll be talking about um, technology. Uh, the new digital individual um, is technology enslavement or liberation. Uh, now, all of the distinguished panel, I'm sure, will have views on that. And I'm, I'm joined by Aditya Devsud, um, Julia Hobsbawm, um, who is uh, standing in for Rajesh, who unfortunately has uh, had to uh, disappear, has some pressing family issues. But I know Julia is going to make a fantastic contribution. Um, and then on my right-hand side, uh, Nishant Shah um, and Dan Lloyd. Um, now, we have the biographies in the book, so please do have a look at, at them and their backgrounds. They're all eminently qualified uh, to, uh, uh, to comment on this topic. But before we get going, I want to find out what kind of new digital individuals you are in the audience. So let's ask a few questions. Um, how many people here have got mobile phones with them right now? That's got to be everybody. Is there anybody who hasn't got their hand up? How many have got two? <laughs> how many people access the internet on their mobile phones? Pretty much everybody. How many people use social media? YouTube. I want to try an experiment with YouTube. How many people have seen a Japanese cat called Maru who gets in and out of boxes? <laughs> that's actually not, that's quite a lot of people actually. <laughs> um, how many people use Twitter? Okay. Um, and finally, how many people have sent a physical letter in the past 12 months? <laughs> Uh, so you guys are like halfway, you know. <laughs> but I think you've got at least one foot deeply into digital. So, so this is a discussion which is not of purely intellectual merit, because if technology is enslavement, then all of you are personally deep into bondage uh, right now. <laughs> oh, that's probably a bad way to put it, actually. Uh, all of you are deep into slavery um, uh, already. So, uh, so please uh, take a, a deep personal interest in this, uh, in this discussion. Um, so um, with that introduction out of the way, um, I'm going to kick off by asking uh, the panel um, to discuss what technology, um, liberation, and enslavement means uh, in terms of uh, citizens. You know, we are in the middle of uh, uh, some fascinating times uh, with upheaval, particularly in the, the Middle East, the Arab Spring, um, and a lot of the coverage of this has centered around the use of technology um, in, in these uh, uh, either completed or incipient revolutions. So does, does this mean um, that technology uh, is uh, a force for, for good which is spreading democracy, um, or is it rather the other way? Is it uh, in fact, uh, the case that governments will ultimately come to own technology, that the great firewall of China is simply the sign of things to come, um, and when governments get their house in order, they're going to find ways to make technology a controlling influence rather than a liberating influence. Um, so perhaps I could start with you, uh, Aditya. That's mostly all I want to talk about, actually. Um, you know, first a bit of a shout-out around this theme, which is um, kind of the framing topic for when we met up in New York. The, um, the EINNN event in New York was sort of framed around this topic. And at the time, people were trying to make sense of a phenomenon that was then called the Arab Spring. At that point, the Anna Hazare movement in India hadn't really happened. Uh, Occupy Wall Street was not even a gleam in anybody's eye. And it did indeed look like a once-in-a-generation, a, a once-in-a-century phenomenon that focused around petro-states or totalitarian regimes of a particular kind. Um, well, we've come a long way since then. And there's already been a bit of discussion amongst the commentariat about whether, in fact, this is a techno-deterministic phenomenon. Once you let a population onto Twitter and FB, this is what's going to happen. And then people have sort of pushed back against that as well. Um, I've had some opportunity to reflect on these things since we met up in New York. And I'd like to reframe this in terms of trust, maybe just picking up on your invitation, Rob, from uh, just after lunch. It seems to me that 
what we're seeing globally is a crisis of trust. That is, there are new standards of trust, mutuality, um, probity, reputation, which an old guard is failing to live up to or is betraying in some way. Where do these new standards come from? So a bit of a leap here. But I argue that these new standards of trust come from the experience of online, social-mediated, networked interaction. So being online transforms our understandings of what trust can achieve for us and what kinds of trust is necessary for us to interact with the world. So a kind of karmic theory of what goes around, comes around, begins to inform the consciousness and uh, worldview of those of us who are actually active online, uh, which is a minority of people who are over 40, but which is approaching a majority. And in future, we'll say that it's basically an absolute uh, unity of all of the people that are under 25 and that will be under 25 in the future. So this crisis is generational, and it has to do with the kinds of, um, well, forms of connectedness that people enjoy once they go online. So that's the, I think, first point I'd like to make. And if you'll allow me, I'll make maybe one and a half more points. Um, The second is about trust, collaboration, and innovation. Um, I mean, I had the occasion to hear um, the government of India's uh, Secretary for Biotechnology Mahajan K. Bhan talk about innovation in a public forum. And he said, look, innovation at bottom is all about collaboration and connectedness. It's about unlike minds getting together and building on each other's ideas. Now, to the extent that social media, groups of interests, um, different kinds of professional communities, discussion groups, allow that kind of connectedness to happen, it promotes collaboration, promotes creativity, and demonstrably so in the case of, for example, the Occupy Wall Street movements, where we see tremendous creativity around ideas, around media that are home-cooked, homemade, and which then go viral and begin to really impact uh, the topics and thinking of our times. When we come to a situation where online networked coalitions and forces are getting to be more innovative, more creative than traditional hierarchical institutions, bureaucracies in the private sector, the public sector. That's the point at which we are getting to a real crisis. So that's a second sense of crisis around a situation where network communities are demonstrating that they know more, are able to coordinate better, and are able to dynamically respond to phenomenon maybe more swiftly than the guys that we thought were actually in charge. Can I I just ask a specific question, though? Do you think that people are disengaging from traditional democratic processes because they see the web as a better way to get things done if they really care about something? That's a bit large, so I will sidestep that in order to go back to meditating on crises. When When we encounter crises, we see that actually the people who have you know, designed or are in part of a particular kind of mobilization on Tahrir Square or at Jantar Mantar or in Ramlila grounds, they've got the energy and the dynamism and they've basically stolen the show from political parties, legislative processes. Um, so now, if that, when and if that happens, I mean, it hasn't happened too much on the world stage yet, but it has begun to happen. And are we likely to see more of it? I say yes. Okay. okay. So, yeah. So I, I get I get a sense of a, a single global consciousness emerging amongst the, the young generations, um, which is uh, disrupting uh, traditional orders and ways of getting things done. Okay. So so that's that's uh, I guess passionately in favour of technology's liberation. Um, any other views, Dan? Dan, do you have a, a take on this? Um, I mean, I guess uh, uh, from a Vodafone perspective, you you know you're actually in a position of trust as providing a platform where a lot of this discussion and exchange is, is being done, can you see that these platforms are also potentially instruments for control, or is it just about liberation? 
So working for a global communications company like Vodafone that's got about 350 million customers, you, you could forgive me for leaning slightly towards the liberating side of this equation. But uh, there, there is, of course, a very serious set of questions that underlie all this. And w working in regulatory affairs and government relations, and particularly working in India in that area for the last two and a half years, I, I, I find myself in a very privileged position where uh, we need to gain the cost of our trust of, uh, trust of our customers on the one hand, but also need to gain the trust of the government, and in India particularly not just the telecommunications regulator, but a, a much broader set of stakeholders around the industry. And I think that puts us in a really interesting position to see all of the varieties of tension, concern, joy, liberation uh, that, that our communications technology brings. I'd, I'd just make a couple of overwhelming framing comments on this sort of area and, and we had a particular experience in Egypt which I'm sure many of you heard about where the government uh, attempted to use the communications networks in order to maintain its position of power and eventually tried to pull the plug particularly on the international internet connections and, and so out of that experience we've got some fairly clear views on what we think is going on here. So, so the first one is that the only reason that the Egyptian government were able to go as far as they were able to go with the communications networks is that they maintain a monopoly on the international gateway. There are very very few countries in the world that would have been able to take those steps and the number of countries that uh, are maintaining that monopoly control over networks is diminishing rapidly over time. So, so once you have multiple channels, multiple networks, particularly multiple forms of international connectivity, which is the inevitable and fast trajectory that the world is going on, it makes it much, much, much more difficult for governments to intervene, to try to control, to try to impose their will through the communications networks. The, the second one is the speed and inherently distributed nature of the internet. You can try to block an IP address, as the Great Firewall of China does, but that doesn't stop people from using proxy server addresses, moving it to another IP address, distributing it through a different format, encrypting it, so on and so forth. Uh, then what I think we really saw in Egypt, and I think that the reason that that sort of uh, last-ditch attempt to really impose a totalitarian control through communications networks. The reason that has been very, very rare is that it was clear in that circumstance as soon as they did that, the population were under no illusions as to the position that they and the government were in. They were under no illusion as to the possibility that the Mubarak regime was going to allow them to continue even incrementally on the path towards liberation. And, and in many ways, the shutting down of the communications networks left the population with very little left to lose. And in my view, it was actually a, a, a great mistake that they made if you look at the objectives that the regime was trying to achieve. Shutting down the communications networks sent a very strong signal that they had gone too far and I think vastly contributed to the, to the fall of the regime. So, so overall there, there's clearly some very serious questions that we need to continue to ask ourselves and I agree absolutely that reputation and trust are the underpinning questions that we need to ask. But, but overall I, I'm a very firm believer that these communications technologies are driving a much more liberating relationship between citizen and government. Thank you. So, Julia, which, uh, which side of the debate do you come down on? Well, I'm going to focus my remarks on the personal. Um, of course, the great rallying cry of the feminist movement was that the personal is political. And I think that the personal question of liberation or enslavement is as relevant to this debate as the big geopolitical, you know, how mass pe masses of people, there are more mobile phones, are there not in the world, Dan, than there are people, etc. And I would focus on two things. One is that because of the relative privacy of using, let's call it, the internet or social media, people can actually be overly personal. They can overshare and they can be overly abusive. And so 
I'm broadly in favour of the freedom argument, the liberation argument. You know, if you want it in a nutshell, what, what, do I come down on which side or the other? But I would say that some of the unintended consequences of this incredible liberation are uh, that the public is using its ugly mob voice you have the phenomenon of trolling, people are abused, women in particular are extremely vulnerable to this. And you also have a personal enslavement. I've just begun to practice something which uh, I've dubbed, uh, it turns out I wasn't the first to use this phrase, technology Shabbat, which is that... Um, with the exceptions of today, on a Friday evening at six o'clock, as if I were practicing the Jewish holiday, I turn off my technology and for one seventh of the week, I do not communicate with the exception of a mobile phone. And the reason why I do this is that otherwise I am neurotically, obsessively, compulsively, constantly connected. And I think that is a form of enslavement. So whilst I think the big questions here are, of course, macro and G geopolitical and the meaning of life, for me, a lot of it's about my children saying, Mum, get off Twitter. I think a lot of us can relate to that. Um, I, I won't ask you how many of you sleep with your mobile phones, but I suspect it's probably quite a number. Um, so, Nishan, uh, what, what is your view on this big question? Right. You know, uh, when I first read about the panel, I was really kind of intrigued with it because in 2004, I was sitting in Amsterdam on a panel which was asking, is pornography liberating or enslaving? Um, it led to really strong and strange arguments. But I also want to perhaps follow up on Rob and want to show off hands saying, how many people in the audience have seen internet pornography? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, uh, I, I kind of want to... I want to start with questions of pornography because for me, uh, questions of liberation and enslaving, uh, apart from the really nice uh, sadism, masochism and bondage associations it has with it, uh, I, I really want to focus on something that Aditya is kind of talking about in terms of a crisis and that I have been trying to articulate as a sense of precarity, right? When biological survival, social identification, political identification, community and relationships become precarious, so that the presents that we live in do not offer us futures that we can imagine. That's when things start shaking up. And that's one of the things that we've seen in the Middle East, in North, North Africa, in different kinds of different parts of the world where people have taken to arms. So for me, if you, if you kind of start looking at this whole question of whether it's liberating or enslaving, I would say it's possibly both. But that, that is a peculiar subject condition that is that is kind of present in everything. So even, even if you take up something like family, for example, the fact that you belong to your family or that you have the right to belong to your family is also about the fact that your family possesses you, which means that you can make certain claims on them and then there will be certain constraints which are set upon you. Or as citizens, for example, if that's what's at stake, that it's a very clear discourse of rights and responsibilities. The fact that you can say that I am an Indian or that this is my country automatically means that there are different sets of limitations which are going to be set upon you and that can also be looked upon some sort of power tyranny or enslavement, right? So I don't think the question is an either or. I think they both go hand in hand. That you are subjects of technology, then you are also subjects to technology. For me, I think the important question would be to go to questions of ownership. Because if the digital technologies, if the Web 2.0, if social media is going to articulate a new kind of public space for you, I'm very intrigued about who owns that public space. Is it a privately owned space which is rented out for public usage like Zuccotti Park is right now in terms of Wall Street? Is it really the same kind of public that we imagined, let's say, even 30 or 40 years ago or maybe 200 years ago with the advent of print technologies? Where does the ownership lie? And what is it that we are actually engaging with in that public space? So. The question perhaps might be that what we are constantly being told is that we own the information which is being produced on Web 2.0, but increasingly we disinvest from the technologies that shape Web 2.0. Yeah? So that you have Facebook and you can do everything with Facebook as long as Facebook allows you to do that. Right? Like, has anybody ever tried, for example, changing your Facebook homepage color? It's hideous. It's white and blue. Right? But you can't. So there are certain kinds of choices which are constantly made available at the level of what information can do, 
but there is a huge amount of restriction in terms of what you as an individual can do in terms of ownership with technology and i think that's where the new debates are going to be because if you don't own the technological platform then there are always going to be different kind of authoritarian powers who are going to shut down obstruct change the ways in which you engage with technologies and what you can do with them and the limitations therein so i'm going to throw in into that particular idea of the public the private uh, the questions of crises uh, i'm also kind of interested in looking at questions of ownership and maybe we can take that up later well why don't, why don't we actually take up some of those themes straight away because uh, certainly i mean social media has popped up in a couple of the uh, the comments uh, already and there seems to be a, an acknowledgement of a, a good side and a dark side to social media um i'm interested in just exploring the the darkest side of social media um a little bit here um and I'm actually going to hark back um to to kick this off to some comments that were made in back in 1994 by uh, a Californian lady called Carmen Hermosillo um and she was one of the very early participants in online discussion forums and and groups um and uh, at one point in 1994 she shocked her um fellow participants in a forum by putting forward the idea uh that the whole of the this social media environment they were engaged in um which I mean even at that time they didn't call it social media but that's what it was um was in fact a process of turning their thoughts their ideas their feelings into a commodity um which could be sold by AOL um and uh it it uh, it caused a lot of debate and discussion at that point and then it died but I think it's a it's a uh, highly relevant notion because now well what does facebook do they make billions of dollars and what what is their product well it's your friendships your uh, relationships your photos your comments your i mean that's that's all there is on facebook so they must be turning that into money somehow um and is that a comfortable notion so So let's ask some questions about that. Is it, you know, is a Facebook friend a real friend? Um is Facebook your friend really? Um and uh you know, is social media bringing out the best in us? Uh you mentioned trolling. Um I don't know if you want to pick up on on that and some of the the more uh, uh unfortunate things that seem to be coming out in online online debate. Well, you know, this is music these questions are music to my ears because why are we in a room now uh it's because no matter how much facebook dominates the space people want face to face contact and what i think is very interesting is that you've had a phase when the digital identity has prevailed and we're moving more into a space where people are trying to accommodate real time association and actually what's interesting amongst other things to me about the uprisings about this extraordinary year is that in some senses whilst twitter and facebook have been used to galvanize and mobilize what's really gone in gone on has happened in history before facebook and before twitter which is protest makes word of mouth uh gets people to come and join together because they need to be physically near each other they need to have uh that group effect so to some degree i would argue that we're looking in the wrong place to worry about facebook we should be worrying about how to get more intimacy more connection better understanding offline than trying excessively to control the excesses of what is online um dan uh are we forgetting how to communicate offline um as we connect online I I really don't think we are and I think um again the the fact that so many of the critical interactions in our life acknowledge that that technology is never going to entirely substitute the need for human contact you know I don't think that's a a proposition that many of us would disagree with um so so I I I think that it's quite interesting to think about the examples that you raised so for example AOL was was the 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 company that you mentioned I I don't if you remember what AOL tried to do and how it worked out for them but they were the original inventors of the walled garden to try to keep Uh, a controlled internet environment which wouldn't let you wander off onto sites which would uh, potentially generate revenue for their competitors and and that was a miserable failure it didn't work out very well for AOL in the end you you also mentioned facebook's revenues two things i'd say about facebook's facebook's revenues uh, i i i just snuck a look at my blackberry they've managed to get up to 1.6 billion dollars which quite frankly for a a network of the scale that they have is not very much at all 
And, and the primary driver of Facebook's revenues is something that you might have heard of before on television and newspapers. It's something called advertising. And so they're, they're in many ways, m many of the debates we're having are about the, the cultural interpretation of elements which are manifesting themselves clearly in a very new way. But there's nothing new about a company generating revenues from advertising. And, and in the end, the, the, the story of Facebook and AOL and Vodafone and the communications technologies that have tended to succeed or fail is those that tend to offer the most option, the most customization, the most personalization, the most utility tend to be the ones that succeed. So, so in the end, I, I struggle with the notion that there's a overwhelming long-term trajectory towards enslavement when all the signs are that those who try to control seem to fall away fairly quickly. Those who allow and liberate and are more transparent and more, uh, allow more connectivity tend to succeed in the end. A more positive view there. So I, I suspect, Aditya, that you would sympathise with that view that social media is, uh, in fact, overwhelmingly um, good on balance. You know, so maybe I can interconnect the things that both of you guys had said um, around the relationships between the public and the private. Um, now, you consider this hall here. It's a government institution. It's a public institution, but we've been able to parcel a part of it off for private activity. And that kind of folding of space happens all the time. The Zuccotti Park example is telling, but in fact, entire urban architectures rely on that continuous folding of the public and private into one another. Um, now, you know, we think about the example of maybe security frisking or trying to write down the serial number of your laptop or taking your camera phones away when you enter, uh, you know, a tech park campus in Bangalore or something like that. There's some sort of naive attempt to keep the public out and to maintain, uh, you know, this uh, private enclave uh, of security and, uh, and of secrecy. But um, I think it's, it's, it's exactly as naive. Um, and um, the, the ways in which uh, you know, the public and private are now enfolded into one another for good and bad you know, need to, I think, maybe be understood in terms of you know, surface chemistry, right? So that we live in a continuous emulsion of the public and private. I think this raises some important questions for how our institutions will be designed in future. Thank you. Um, and Nishant, uh, I don't know if you want to comment, and then, in fact, I think we'll go out and ask some questions from the audience. I want to just add to the entire pool of things, this relationship between the human and the technological. Um, it's almost as if the human beings did not have relationships with technology before 1996, <laughs> right? As if the digital technologies are the only ones which are mediating everything. Um, Andy Clark, who's one of my favorite artificial intelligence theorists, has this fantastic book called The Natural Born Cyborg. Um, and Clark talks about how we forget that speech is a technology that it is a learned tool, that there are different protocols which are given to it, that time is a technology, and we cannot think of ourselves as outside of time in any possible way. And we forget that a lot of what it means to be human is crafted by different kinds of technologies, which in their own time were looked upon with great fear and apprehension as well. Yeah? Uh, this, I just want to add with this really beautiful anecdote of this editorial that came out in the Herald Tribune just when the phone was invented, where there is this meticulous list of things which were given out to people so that they can use the phone responsibly. And it ends by saying, when you hold the receiver near your ear, make sure that there's at least two inches away from your ear, because otherwise the germs which the other person on the other line might have will get transmitted to you through that, right? So I think it's, 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 it's kind of necessary to start unpacking the anxieties we have around the technological instead of trying to fall into the either-or debate. Thank you. Um, there is actually a wonderful quote from uh, uh, Douglas Adams, who's the, the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm sure you all know him. Um, and he uh, made a comment in an essay a few years ago um, that gets right to the heart of this issue. And what he said was that uh, uh, everything that's in the world when you're born is just normal. No matter how remarkable it is, you just take it complete for granted. Electric light in a room is a remarkable thing, but we, we just um, see it as normal. Um, everything that is created from when you're born through to about the age of 30 is remarkable, cool, groundbreaking. You can probably make a career out of it. Anyone who's not into it is probably square. Um, and then everything that's invented after you're 30 is um, harmful, destructive, will probably destroy civilizations, cause cancer, uh, 
correct communities, um, but ultimately turns out to be all right in the end. Um, and, and I think that is a, it's a wonderful insight into the attributes of all of us to technology and something in some ways we can't help, but it, it, it does say that actually technology now is no more remarkable than technology 100 years ago. It's just what we feel about it. So uh, on that note, well, let's go out to the audience and see if we've got some questions uh, for the panel there. There's one that immediately um, uh, raised at speed. Uh, hi, uh, James from uh, Ogilvy. Um, I uh, just wanted to ask a question about um, personal branding and the need to sort of uh, manage personal image on the internet. Because obviously these days LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, um, the kind of issue around you know, job hunting, people looking at you, checking you out. Um, there seems to be more of an emphasis now uh, for people to sort of curate themselves online, sort of manage how they're being seen online. Um, and, and I'm sort of interested to, to ask the panel a question around whether that's enslaving or liberating or, or whether actually the entire process itself is... Uh, um, perhaps a little bit, uh, I don't know, somehow back to front. Is it, is it more that personal connections in the real world should be superseded? Okay. So uh, should, we, should we hire the services of Ogilvy to, to manage our personal brands? Um, or, you know, is there something else there? I would a quick comment. Um, uh, you know, if I remember right, I think it's uh, Milan Kundera had a nice little line about um, a guy at a royal court somewhere, maybe Austria, who... Um, uh, somehow shat himself to death because he wouldn't go to the bathroom when he was supposed to in a public forum. And the reason being that, you know, he would always act as if there were cameras on him, even in an era when there were no television cameras. So, I mean, I think the, the point of the anecdote is that people have always acted, or, you know, it's, it's easy to extrapolate to the idea that even when there was no social media and, and no uh, media attention, it's possible that consciousness requires us to act in ways which are like ourselves or like the projections that we would like to have of ourselves. So again, I'd, I'd question how new that phenomenon is. When, when I came to the conference today, I thought about what trousers I would wear. I think about when I meet people, is this someone that I should shake hands with? Is this someone that I should kiss on the cheek? We're constantly thinking about how we project ourselves forward and the fact that communications technology has become so prevalent. I think it's entirely natural that people think about how they project themselves online as well as, as, well as personally. So again, I'm, I'm not sure that there's anything fundamentally new in that. We should always look for people who are pushing it beyond the bounds of ethics and legality in the society. So people who are straight out lying about their CVs or engaging in criminal behaviour by doing that sort of thing, clearly that's gone far above and beyond. But the very act of people attempting to project their personality, including through communications technology, I, I see as entirely natural. be very brief about this. I think the only caveat to all of that is that the digital doesn't forget, and that's a problem. Um, that while I perform certain kinds of activities in physical space, it might reside in your memory saying I have strange mannerisms, I perform different kinds of things, but you know, eventually you will forget. But the fact that what I do right now is never, ever going to be forgotten. Like even if Google collapses, there's still going to be the Wayback Machine which remembers everything that I said and did and posted online is a question. Because we've been doing this project called Digital Natives with a Cause, which works with like uh, about 150 people in three continents, Asia's Africa, Latin America, and all of them have been talking about how the right to be forgotten is something that needs to be very seriously taken when you talk about who you are online. So I thought that that's something that we might want to throw. I do think this question about the individual brand is matters hugely, particularly to the next generation, if you like. I'm 48 and nearly 48, and it's a you know it's a bit of a novelty. I've got four and a half thousand followers on Twitter, carefully nurtured. But my children, who range from six to 22, they are going to have to navigate this landscape in which their digital footprint uh, lasts like footprints in the snow, and that does matter because it distorts the way society has run to date because it allows some people to gain a notoriety purely because they make more noise. It allows others uh, 
to not have the luxury of anonymity when they would like some privacy. There's a huge debate in the UK at the moment over press intrusion, an inquiry that's well worth following called the Leveson Inquiry. So I, I, don't, I, I don't think I can be absolute about what it means except to say it does mean a lot. I don't think that this question of brand identity and personal identity is, um, is, is in any way trivial or marginal. I think, unfortunately, it's being bestowed. I mean, if you are an academic now, how are you going to get your ideas out unless you're a good enough lecturer to be put out uh, digitally? Does that mean your ideas don't matter? No, but if you can't communicate them, it means you've got a problem, your career has a problem, and your students may not learn as much. So this new dimension is affecting uh, the world, the transmission of ideas. Okay, I've seen a few hands going up in the room, so we're going to try and do things a little more quick-fire, so maybe a question and one or two comments on the back out. Uh, hi, so I'm Matt Peacock from Vodafone. Um, quick question in a different direction. Um, is the panel concerned about the death of the fact and its replacement with a cacophony of opinion. So if two million people think something is true, it is true. Because that's what happens in social media. An excellent question. Um, of course, you can read the FT and get to the truth. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't resist it. But, <laughs> uh, but any other route to the truth um, is, is the fact dead? We deal in the business of comment at Editorial Intelligence in London. We publish a daily digest of what we call the commentariat. Uh, C.P. Snow famously said that facts are sacred and comment is free. There has been a blurring and that blurring is a problem. And opinion is uh, mistaken for fact. But actually I think that the free exchange of information and opinion is what defines a free society. So I do want more of that. Are you at all concerned that debate online is getting is tending towards polarisation, i.e., you know, two groups of people shouting from the extremes rather than No, really I think there's a great debate. plurality of views, but I think that the signposting is a problem. I think that the model of food labelling that has become commonplace now, you know, you can't put an additive in a food substance without labelling it. I think there should there should have been a lot more of that in journalism a lot earlier. I think the more you signpost content and then let people make up their own minds about it, the better. Okay, let's go to the next question. Hi, my name is Priyal Sangvi. Uh, my question is actually the second part of uh, what the first question was. There is one about maintaining personal brands on Twitter, and there's the other on Twitter especially, actually. And there's the other one where they make you a brand, and you it becomes some kind of a hero worship. Uh, it's come to that stage and we're not talking about people who are established professionally or otherwise outside. We're talking about a normal person who suddenly has 10,000 followers and may not be even tweeting some great important news. But there is this hero worship which uh, starts and that I think starts, that's when it starts affecting your mind because uh, you know people come up to you in real life and say, oh you're that person, you're so famous and you don't really know what is going on. But then after a while, it does affect you. So, you know, is that when technolo technology starts enslaving you? Good question. So, any, any of the panel suffering from hero worship in social media? Is that um, <laughs> personal insights? Um, <laughs> I don't, we can't offer any views on that. We haven't, we haven't experienced it. Uh, more, more questions at the back. No. Hi, Divya Anand. Um, my question's more related to the inflection point in computing today. So if you see cloud computing is at a stage when it's going to take off in a big way. So it's almost spurring on a generation of entrepreneurs where they use a cloud as a data center or infrastructure and use Facebook as a channel to grow or sell, you know, to, to market. Now, that's massive. Not yet, but it'll get there. I, I think it's liberating to a great deal, but if you could have some views on that. Well, I, I mean, I think personally the, the, the power of the cloud is here already, and you know, I mean, we see 30% of our subscriber page views come from mobile devices already, um, and that essentially is a, a cloud-based phenomenon. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess this is about the impact of uh, digital on, on business and commerce. Uh, is this a transformative period after which business will never be the same? 
any, any views? Dan, do you want to? There's a school of um, really interesting thought around the perception of risk, which looks at the way uh, people look at risk on two different, two different axes. So the first is, is what the professionals will call risk, which is the professional technical view as to whether there is a risk associated with a particular activity. And then there's what the professionals call fear, which is the public perception of whether there is a risk around a particular activity. And I think the debate around cloud computing is going to be absolutely fascinating because we fundamentally believe, particularly for India, that cloud computing is going to be a transformative, positive economic force, which is really going to allow a, a leapfrog of economic development. But the... the the professionals who study the perception of risk say that th there's often a much greater perception of fear around intangible things that people don't feel they have control over. So, for example, if you ask someone, are you afraid of your, your mobile handset, because they've made a personal choice and it's a very personal object, people very rarely say that there's any fear associated with it. If you ask them, are you afraid of, of radiation from mobile base stations, people will often say, yes, I, I am concerned by that. The fact that, that actually the technical perception, the technical risk underlying both of those may be similar and the World Health Organization says is nominal doesn't change the fact that there's a very different perception of risk. So the thing that just worries me a little bit is I, I think the instinctive reaction to cloud computing because it's something intangible and seems a little uncontrollable may be negative, but I think it's really important that we work through that because I think the fundamental implications of it, again, particularly for India, are going to be very, very profound. Thank you. Let's, let's go back to the audience. I wanted to ask if five years later we were to do another Names Not Numbers and had the same topic, what would the view of the uh, panel be five, forecasting five years down when all these trends are intensifying and further things? So what, what would technology be five years out? How would it change the difference between people's communications, lives, businesses, government? So please, if you can crystal gaze and say five years later, if you had the same Headline, is it in, in liberating or enslaving? What would the answer be? Right, so so, so uh, a small a question there. Do you, want to, do you want to handle that one in a couple of lines? <laughs> so um, actually this came up in the, for me in the last panel and there was no opportunity to really engage it. Um, look, uh, Blockbuster looked like a fantastic uh, place to do business and it looked like it had a future 10 years ago. Uh, I really don't know what the future of uh, theatres is really in India. We didn't have a chance to really talk about, I think... Um, uh, you know, Netflix and other streaming media, the, the idea that, you know, forget about Akash, but you'll have huge proportions of the population that have mobile uh, devices that are continuously connected um, and that they will be used for, for education. They will be platforms for providing medical diagnostics. I mean, it may sound bizarre, but I know people who are actually experimenting with uh, situations where you could actually spit on an iPhone or spit on an iPad and they can do a kind of immediate analysis and diagnostic about your TB status. Um, so the, 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 the kinds of transformations in healthcare and education you know, are going to be tremendous and that, that then the dynamic between mobile networks and social networks, right, that is the dual revolutions that we've just begun in India. The mobile revolution has come kind of to a certain maybe resting point, but the social revolution we're in the absolute full sway of, and that will in involve much more streaming media content, interactive content, and I would consider an explosion of amateur video and, and uh, you know, interactive content, which will then be hosted and distributed by a number of new platforms that just don't exist today. And all of this will be the death knell for whatever we, were, we talked, I mean, whatever we used to call Bollywood. It will certainly not be the way Bollywood has been in the past. Um, so let's go out for another question. I'm Rajendra Shah. I'm just wondering whether um, hyperconnectivity has increased the level of anxiety and made people less reflective, and which has many implications in terms of education, and etc. Because my wife teaches English at a college and she's seen the level of spelling, the level of reflection go down over the years. Julia, is, is online discourse um, turning us all into people who uh, uh, forget grammar and the rules of, uh, uh, of language? I'm, I'm sort of 
I suspect with Dan on the, we've been here before, I mean every year the Oxford English Dictionary adds in some new phrases. Um, we do periodically go through fits of anxiety that nobody will be able to speak or talk proper, as they say, because of texting. But actually I think as long as you have basic levels of literacy, which of course you do not have all around the world, and those are, I think, largely falling and not rising but um, no I think shorthand is uh, is good and uh, you know really texting has been replaced now hasn't it by um, by Twitter and SMS I don't I'm not sure that that problem will be as prevalent in years to come I mean just on the predictions I, I suppose I do think that voice recognition um, and robots and the fact that at, at the moment only if you are on Vodafone 3G can you get uh, Wi-Fi access in this room. I do think that we will be much more in technological surround sound than we are at present. I still think there are pretty big um, gaps and I think the cloud will blanket the world in uh, availability and accessibility and I think that will make these personal choices about how much you are available and on more pressing um, and then of course there's the big question about what happens if it all fails <laughs> Okay, uh, I know there's another question in the back Yeah, so this is Parmesh and it's a question to all the panellists I wonder if in your imagination um, you also have space for the new non-digital individual uh, so I know Nishant, you love talking about cyborgs, but is the cyborg uh, an, a certainty or is it just one of the many eventualities? Um, and I wonder if you know, any of the others have to say, Julia, you spoke about how in the future the, all of this is going to happen with great certainty. I wonder if um, you know, as we grow, you know, non-digital is not just, you know, non, the, the non-digital might also actually be um, a certainty. I'll hand over to Nishan on this one. For the last eight years, I've actually been trying not to speak about cyborgs. I've actually been trying to push a theory of technosociality. That if you want to talk about subjects, you'll have to talk at an intersection of the technological and the sociological, right? Um, but in the last three years, this has been interesting because we've been specifically dealing with this very peculiar identity called a digital native. I don't know if anybody in this room claims this identity. Is there anybody who claims to be a digital native? Well, that's only Parmesh. Right? What it's, what it's done is it's created this very strange sets of distinctions then, where there is a digital native, a digital immigrant, and a digital settler. Right? I think while those categories in themselves are really, really strange, what's important is that we have to stop thinking about the digital only in terms of usage and access. Because it's not only if you have an iPhone and an iPad and that you're 24-7 connected that you become a digital subject. The digital or the technological is a paradigm. It changes the ways in which states function. Uh, in the next five years, everybody who is an Indian will have a UID number, for example. Yeah? And that's also about certain kinds of technological imaginations of the state and its relationship with the subjects. So if you start thinking about the digital, the non-digital, for us, uh, the, there is no such thing as the non-digital because the digital is a paradigm through which you are going to rethink power relationships, questions of rights and responsibilities for everybody in this country at least. So the, the phrase that we've been trying to use is the digital outcast. What happens when you are granted the rights of becoming digital but can no longer harness the potentials of that? do not have the ways by which you could actually work with these technologies to actualize your citizenship through those kinds of things. So I would say that instead of the non-digital, which is a misnomer, because there will be nobody who is non-digital, we might have to start looking at digital outcasts, people who are on the fringes of technology development and who seem to be a part of it but never really can actualize their relationship with it. Absolutely. Um... So I think we probably have time for maybe one more question. Uh, actually, for me, it's, it's, I'm a bit amused actually with the question because I think that technology is here to stay. And it, you've, you know, what we've been talking about, the fear factor doesn't make sense to me. Uh, for me, I think the interesting question is, what does this technology demand of us in our non-digital interaction lives? Because in education, teachers are worried that kids are doing projects, going home and cutting and pasting. Right? I mean, that's what you hear from teachers all over the place. Uh, you say there's the technology, people are uh, not talking to each other anymore, they're Skyping each other or they're emailing each other. 
right? So does that, I mean, the, the demonization of the technology doesn't make any sense to me. What is it asking us to do in the rest of our lives? Because it's a medium that's here, it's a medium that we're going to live with, it's going to be a medium that we will actively or non-actively be engaging with. I work in theater, and what's okay. been really interesting, I've been working with Prithvi Theater till just recently, and what's been really interesting for me to notice is as social media has caught on, the rise of the number of youngsters who are coming to watch theater, work in theater, volunteer for theater, right? It's amazing. It's that very generation which is being talked about as the isolated generation, right? And we are probably the only theater in the country today which has a rising young population, right? So it's, it's just interesting for me. I don't think it plays out in these very simplistic, I'm doing emails, so I'm not talking to somebody face to face. I think it gives rise to certain needs. Um, also, when, when I've, we work a lot with teachers and this, this complaint about projects, about cutting and pasting, it means it's asking a question of education. What are you, how are you going to teach? What are your teaching methods? You no longer have experts. You have Wikipedia. How do you approach information? Right? And I think a lot of the younger generation is actually quite savvy about how they approach information. I think those of us who are taught in earlier ways often get caught up as in, as in, in the reception of information. You know, I have cousins who are much younger and they have absolutely no problem doubting the information they're seeing. So I think there are interesting ways in which generations, I mean, I, I love your quote from uh, Hitchhiker's, you know, Douglas Adams, yeah. because yeah. I think that's exactly yeah. it. And so the fear factor doesn't make sense to me. I think there are challenges being put out there and they're exciting, interesting challenges. Yeah. Okay. Um, Judy's just got some comments on that and then I think we'll have to move to wrap up the session. As well. I, I mean, you know, when the aeroplane and cheap world travel began of course the world vista opened up and people were able to engage in a, in, with the wider world and I suppose on some level technology affords every generation that ability. My 94 year old father uses the internet and uses email uh, my children meet socially having made arrangements on Facebook but to some degree children and young people as politicians call them uh, they just absorb what's there. They're not aware that their horizons are broader because they're just accepting that in the moment they're making use of what's right in front of them. And it's those people who are coming new to the technology that are so dazzled by it. Um, certainly as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur, I think that the landscape is going to change significantly as a result of technology. There's no question that uh, the business landscape will be redefined by new technology. I'm just not sure how much the cultural landscape will more than it already does, which is it constantly reinvents itself with or without a new, new, new technology. Just quickly on your last point, um, you know, last week in Delhi we hosted a Pecha Kucha. Um, which, uh, you know, we did the first Pecha Kucha in Bangalore in 2006 and nobody could really get a handle on what this was about at that time. But now, you know, just last week we found that a lot of people quite sophisticated and comfortable with running a Pecha Kucha. And Pecha Kucha, like karaoke, is a kind of interactional format that could never have existed if these technologies, just PPT and projectors and laptops did not exist. And so in the future, I mean, just to riff on your point, Samira, which I was thinking of you in the last film panel, before there was a film industry, there was a theater industry, in fact. And in the future, there may be a telepresence industry that requires, you know, the networking of space in different cities and venues around the world for certain kinds of cultural actions to be possible. So I would look forward to that. Thank you. I think that's uh, a good, good point at which to end the discussion because uh, we have potentially opened up a whole new world which you can now go and discuss um, in the garden over tea. Um, so rather than eat any further into that time, I'm going to wrap things up here. I was going to say thank you to the panel for fantastic contributions. Thank you also to the audience for some great questions and participation. Um, and I think on balance, uh, the, the debate came down in favour of liberation. So you are all free. That's the good news that comes out of the discussion. Thank you. Thank you.